So after I poured all the kerosene all over the driveway and I threw a match at it, it was the loudest explosion that had ever been heard in our neighborhood. Hello and welcome. I'm Pablo Caslimas, and you are listening to The Art of Biz, a show where we share the stories of distinct entrepreneurs, along with their successes, failures, and the lessons they've learned along their journeys. Today, I am excited to kick off our very first episode with Marty Schaffel. Pleasure to be here, Pablo. Thank you for hosting this event. Marty graduated from the University of Florida in the 70s, and went on to start Audiovisual Innovations after being fired from his job. AVI, currently known as AVISPL, is now the world's largest distributor and integrator of audiovisual equipment for boardrooms, classrooms, and conference rooms in the world. AVISPL is currently on track to do over a billion dollars in revenue this year. Marty started AVI out of his two-bedroom apartment in Lakeland, Florida in 1979 almost 40 years ago. From what I understand, you actually got kicked out of the University of Florida when you were a student. Is that true? Well, I was working on my MBA and I was in this macroeconomics class and the professor would be putting these very long equations on the board and indicating that we were going to use these equations when we were in an executive position in our careers when we left the University of Florida. And I couldn't at all see how we would sit around a conference room trying to talk about a business issue and utilize these incredibly long mathematical equations. I just didn't see it. So after the 10th or 11th time, I raised my hand and said, are we really going to use that when we leave here? Uh, he uh, uh, failed me in the course, and I fell below a 3.0, one semester short of finishing my MBA, and the dean called me in and suggested that I find a job. He offered me a second uh, bachelor's degree in business if I moved on down the road and got a job. So I said, no, I really want to finish my MBA, and he said, no, you really want to take this one-time offer. So. He won that argument and I left and within two years of leaving, I started uh, my first company called AVI and the rest is history. So what was it like coming back? Uh, I, I understand that they also awarded you a Lifetime Achievement Award in entrepreneurship. Well, uh, I've enjoyed being back. I've been guest lecturing for over 10 years and teaching classes I'm in my fourth year now. and. I built my career trying to help my employees be successful. And after I finished and sold uh, my company, there was that void. Uh, what I enjoyed most was helping be people be successful. And I knew that if I did, I would be successful. So coming up to the University of Florida and working with students and mentoring and coaching them and teaching and helping them get ready to go into the world and be successful has been just a great joy to me and filled that void that I had spending so many years trying to help all my employees be successful. And I start every one of my classes by telling students, 
if there's anything that you question whether you would use it when you leave the university that I talk about in my classes, you need to raise your hand and call me out on it and ask me if it's really something that they would use because I want to make sure that what we do and utilize in the classroom has long-term value for all of the students. So let's go back to when you graduated. You mentioned that there was a two-year period before you started your company. What exactly did you do during those two years? Well, the first job I took after I left the university was as a manager trainee for Montgomery Ward's department store, which no longer exists. And it was an interesting experience. I spent six months going to every department and every function in the store and learning about it from human resources to shipping and receiving to uh, accounting. Uh, and I managed a, a department and worked in different departments. So it was a very a fortuitous situation. I was paid very little, but I learned an awful lot in six months. And as a and then I got solicited to go into sales, and I'd always been afraid of sales, even though I th thought I could be good at it. It was just that aura around the word sales. But I gave it a try and found out that I liked it. But as usual, I didn't like who I was working with. I always wanted to have my hands on the steering wheel whenever. Uh, we were going somewhere in life and I didn't feel that that was the case where I was at. So I eventually put together the combination of what I learned in the department store experience with what I learned in sales to start a company. Now you mentioned that you got fired from that job. Uh, yeah, I got into a dispute with my boss. Uh, he complained about how messy my desk was and this, that, and the other. And uh, I said, hey, I'm producing a lot. Uh, sorry, we don't agree on some of these things. And he threw a temper tantrum and we parted ways. Best thing that anybody could have ever done for me. So did you go out right as soon as you got fired from there and start AVI or did you get another job or? I briefly had one more job where it became real clear to me that I needed to start this company. I went to a business that had been started by somebody who left the same company I had uh, just been fired from and worked with him to start a new part of his business selling products that I had just become familiar with in the audiovisual world. And then this one product called a Croy lettering machine, which is the very first thing that my new company sold, uh, came on the market. And that's when I realized I needed to start my own company selling this product. Just being a dealer for this manufacturer of this product into the marketplace. How did that come about? Did you just, you saw an opportunity and you decided to quit and go start your own company or? Well, I took this product on initially for this company uh, that I was working with, but he didn't, he, 
he didn't pay the bills for the product that we ordered and the manufacturer put us on credit hold so that's when I went to the manufacturer and said I'm gonna start my own company selling this product and I would uh, like you to set me up as a dealer for this product however I wasn't in any better shape than he was I only had two thousand dollars to my name a beat-up paid-for station wagon and a $400 a month apartment and a dog. So I can't say that I had a lot to offer them except the commitment that I would be working very hard to get their products sold. And the very first shipment that they sent to me, they sent me cash on delivery so that they didn't extend me any credit. So you've told me in the past that um you felt that you were a terrible employee. Do you believe that what made you a terrible employee is the same thing that made you a great entrepreneur? Well, I've heard it said that if there's a little bit of juvenile delinquent in somebody, they probably have a propensity to be an entrepreneur because part of entrepreneurship is pushing the envelope, uh, pushing the rules, and wanting to aggressively make things happen that may seem too painfully slow to this type of individual. At what age did you realize that you were going to be an entrepreneur? Were you born an entrepreneur? Did you start companies throughout high school like other entrepreneurs? Or Well, when I was 10, uh, my mother convinced me that I could make a little money going up and down the street painting people's mailboxes. So after I painted everybody's mailbox and got paid for that, and I didn't want to venture that far from our house, the next project that I came up with was building bird feeders and making these custom bird feeders and selling them to people in the neighborhood. And then after I sold everybody a bird feeder, then I started a lawn service where I would go and offer to cut people's grass and edge their lawns. And this lady across the street and a few houses down had this beautiful white gravel driveway. And she called me over and said, uh, uh, are you willing to do a project for me? I said, well, you don't have any grass. All you have is this beautiful white gravel. And she said, yes, but look at those little weeds sneaking up. Uh, through the rocks. I need you to get down on your hands and knees and pick all these little weeds. We agreed on a price. I got down on my hands and knees on this sharp gravel and started pulling these little weeds out and I said there's got to be a better way to do this. So I'm back home and I got a five gallon container of kerosene <laughs> and poured it all over a driveway and thought well we can just burn these little suckers out and I'll be all done. So after I poured all the kerosene all over the driveway and I threw a match at it. It was the loudest explosion that had ever been heard in our neighborhood. And after the fire dissipated, her white driveway looked like a Dalmatian. It was half black and half white. <laughs> Not in any particular pattern that one would wish to keep. So that was the end of my lawn business. Ended just about right then. <laughs> When my father had to explain to this lady how we were going to fix her driveway. (laughs) 
Some entrepreneurs have an exact vision of where they are going from the beginning of their companies, like Jeff Bezos and Amazon. However, some entrepreneurs have started their companies by accident, like Brian Chesky and Joe Gebbia with Airbnb. Did you go into this with a complete vision of what you were building and where you were going? And if not, when did you first think, hey, I might be onto something here? Well, I personally found that I got fired from every job I ever had my entire life. And I realized that if I ever wanted to be at the top of an organization, I had to start at the top and build the bottom. So after uh, uh, trying some different endeavors after leaving the University of Florida, at the age of 27, I started Audiovisual Innovations, which, as you said, became the world's largest integrator of audiovisual video and display technology for conference rooms, boardrooms, war rooms, stadiums, and other styles of venues. How did this come about? Did you just one day go, I'm going to start selling projectors? I mean, how did you get started? Over time, I probably had to reinvent myself and the company six or seven times. But the very first thing that happened was in 1979, I saw a product that I just thought was going to be a incredible uh, seller in the marketplace. It was a gray box about 18 inches by 18 inches by 18 inches, and it would produce letters, black letters on a piece of scotch tape-like material. And back then, we didn't have personal computers or other ways to put lettering on engineering drawings, uh, lettering to create flyers, or other larger letters than what you could produce from a typewriter. So I called the company and I said, I'm really excited about this product and I want to start a company and be a dealer for you just selling your product. It's brand new and it's revolutionary and I'm very excited about it. And they said, well, that's great. How much money do you have? The opening order is $10,000 for 10 machines and everything you need to go with it. And I said, well, I have $2,000. Because actually, at the time, I only had $2,000, a $400 a month apartment, a paid-for beat-up station wagon, and a dog. And that was my, uh, my entire net worth. So they said, well, you need $10,000. Do you have a line of credit? And I said, no. And they said, well, can you get a letter of credit? And I said, no. They said, well, how are you planning on paying for this opening order. And I said, well, I was kind of hoping you'd give me credit. And they said, no. So we were at a little bit of a standoff. But I said, well, why don't you send me the opening order to my apartment, which I didn't tell them I was working out of my apartment. I implied that I was working out of a nice office space. And send it to me, cash on delivery, UPS, and I'll pay for it. Uh, with a check when it arrives. And oddly enough, they agreed to do it, and I gave them a check for $10,000, which at the time it took about eight days for the check to move all the way through the system. Uh, this is not advised uh, for anybody in today's world. This is not a good way to get working capital to start a business. Very risky. But uh, it was a, a bold, desperate move that 
I had absolutely nothing to lose because I didn't have anything. And as Bob Dylan said in the song Like a Rolling Stone, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. So the units arrived and I unboxed one. And the very next morning, uh, I loaded five of them in my car and uh, went to five different companies that I thought would be absolutely perfect for this product. And I only had room in my car for five. And I was able to sell five out of five demonstrations, picked up five checks, each check about $1,000. So I did the same thing the second day. So now I had $10,000 and made my check good had a couple thousand dollars worth of profit and did it again. My check was a little bit better the second time, not perfect, and sold those 10 machines in two days, made another few thousand dollars and did it again. Same thing, only my check was good this time. Eventually they gave me credit and I was able to buy more machines. I bought 20 machines and I bought another 20 machines and I bought 50 machines and eventually sold a couple thousand of these machines and when people used the machines the machines required a proprietary cartridge that had the tape and the ribbon in it so after we sold a few thousand of these machines we ended up with i started hiring employees by then we ended up with about a million dollars worth of revenue in just these supply cartridges that were required to operate the machine so wow. then I started moving into other kinds of products uh, in 1981. Uh, very early audio-visual type products, slide projectors, movie projectors, technology that we don't use right now, but was popular at the time. And then in the early 80s, we reinvented ourselves to catch the video wave. And uh, at that particular time, uh, video cassette recorders and camcorders and editing equipment uh, started coming out and uh, by Panasonic and JVC and we started selling that product. And then in around 1988, uh, then we were in an office warehouse space in Tampa. A guy came walking in the door with a very early Apple PC and a plastic picture frame with a piece of glass in the middle. And he asked if we had an old-fashioned overhead projector. He wanted to show me something. I went and got that device. He put the picture frame on top of the overhead projector. There was a cable hanging from this picture frame that he plugged into the Apple PC. We turned everything on. And this glass was the very first use of liquid crystal material, which we know today in all kinds of flat screens. It was the very first use of liquid crystal material to project an image and the light went through the glass and the image was actually on the liquid crystal material wow. and up on the screen we now were able to see words text images that came out of the computer and i looked at it and said wow that's the way the world's going to start communicating and i shifted the whole focus of the company to display technology and the rest is history. The company now has several thousand employees and they're likely to do a billion dollars worth of business this year.
and they're still the world's largest uh, integrator of display technology. Okay, let's rewind for a second. So you bought 10 of these devices, and then you packed them in your car to go sell them. Did you have a plan? Like, where did you think you were going to sell these things? My worst fear is that I would go to a company that was too small and they would want to think about the decision. Or that I would go to a company so big that they couldn't hand me a check on the spot. They may want to give me a purchase order and I would have to wait for the money, which I didn't have time to wait for. So I had to find the right size company that would be interested as soon as they saw it. So I unboxed one of them and made samples of the name of the company, the address of the company. And I made these sample strips of each company that I targeted and I showed up at the uh, first one at 8 o'clock in the morning and I handed the sample strips to the receptionist and I said, if you'll take this to whoever is in charge of creating lettering for drawings, engineering drawings, because I targeted initially engineering companies first because I thought they were the absolute best uh, first market. Tell them I'm in the lobby and I'll show them how I did that if they're interested. So they took the strips, uh, walked them back to wherever the drafting or drawing department was and the person in charge of it came walking out with the strips in their hands and said, how'd you do this? And I said, well, if you'll take me back to where everybody uh, currently creates all your lettering and drawing, I'll show everybody. Because I, I knew as soon as people started touching it and using it, and trying it out that they would want it because it solved a lot of problems back then. There right. wasn't a good way to do it until this came out. It was a very clever invention. Mm -hmm. And I would get every single person to use it and try it, and they fell in love with it. And that's how I was able to be 10 for 10. All 10 companies were of the right size. They could make the decision on the spot and would be willing to write a check, not have a bureaucratic process where it would take me a long time to get the money. You mentioned you don't advise anybody to start their company the way that you did. So what was it about you? Is it something in your DNA? I mean, you had no prior business experience and you took such a big risk. What compelled you to place that initial purchase order for those 10 devices and why do you think you were able to sell them all in just two days? I think it was a calculated risk. Uh, again, as I said, my downside was limited because I didn't have much. And also, I knew once I did it, I knew failure wasn't an option, that I had to give it everything I had because there was no going back. Once I pulled the trigger and said, please ship the units, I knew that failure was not an option. Right. You burned the boats. <laughs> there was no going back. Tell us a little bit about how you had to reinvent yourself as the company started to grow. You started off with one device, you ended up selling another one. Talk a little bit about how that happened. Well, there's two key areas of reinvention that have to happen in the growth of a company. The first one is the company constantly has to adapt and change and uh, pick up the appropriate directions as the world changes. And we did that uh, from the Croy lettering machines, which was the first thing we sold, to uh, simple audio-visual type equipment, as I mentioned, like slide projectors and movie projectors and so on, 
to eventually video equipment, to eventually display technology, to eventually video teleconferencing services, and a variety of other kinds of technology and services. And as the world kept changing, we had to get out in front and be a part of those kinds of technologies that were being sought after by uh, businesses, government agencies, other kinds of organizations, higher education, K through 12 school systems, the religious market. So there was a wide world of business that we could transact. We just had to make sure that we were always ahead of the curve and never falling behind. So we were constantly trying to make sure that we could see what was going to happen next. Mm -hmm. The second half of reinvention comes from the leader themselves. When I started the company, I was the first employee. And I, as I said, I started the company, started at the top and built the bottom because I knew I'd never worked my way up to the top of anything. <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. So when I was the first employee, I did everything. I ordered equipment, I sold equipment, I received equipment, I fixed equipment, I did the invoicing. I did 100% of all the tasks. Uh, then the next thing that I realized once I started hiring employees was that I still had to generate revenue and be the key person generating revenue. But I also had to have an impact on the employees. So I was still selling, but I was selling another different kind of product. And the product that I was selling was a vision of opportunity and success for my employees. Because I truly believe that if I could help these employees be successful, that I would be successful. So my whole goal, and, and I wasn't that enamored by what we did or sold. It could have been plumbing supplies. It could have been toilets. It could have been household goods. I didn't really care. I loved the art of business, the art of leadership, and the art of hiring and developing people. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to check out our blog where we summarize the key points from every episode for your convenience. You can find it at artofbiz.blog. Lastly, I would like to shout out two people in particular who make this show possible. The first is Jay Rogue for recording and cleaning all of our audio. Check out his new album called Friends and Lovers, streaming on Spotify and all other major platforms right now. The second is Drayson, who has produced all of our tracks that we use on the show. He will be dropping his first album called Transcendence in 2019.